Father, thank you for this time together this morning. Uh, we thank you that while we were still sinners, you died for us. God, if there's someone here that doesn't know you this morning, I pray that you would draw them by the power of your Spirit. There's one here this morning who, uh, Lord, has drifted, who has found themselves entangled in the cycles of life. I pray, Lord, that you would begin the process of drawing them today, that they would, uh, Lord, accept your grace and power, and that, Lord, you would break those cycles as they fall beneath you or fall to you, Lord, and pour out their heart to you. God, I thank you that when we come in confession, Lord, you hear. You, Lord, give grace to the humble, but you resist the proud. And so, Lord, we humbly become, come before you this morning asking for grace, asking for strength, for courage, for renewal, for transformation. So, Lord, I pray that the words of Your Word would not only speak, but that they would literally draw men and women to know You in a real and personal way. For those who know You, Father, and have drifted away, I pray, God, that You would convict them that Your Spirit would connect in such a way that they can do nothing but cry out and say, Lord, have mercy. Receive me. Restore me. Renew me. And Lord, we'll give You the praise and the glory for all that You will do. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. We're going to be in John chapter 4. And as I stated earlier, uh, Rob and I are team teaching today. And so he will be coming in just a moment. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to John chapter 4. John chapter 4. And let's begin with the seventh verse. You've heard the story before the woman at the well, Samaritan woman who is uh, not really Jewish. Matter of fact, probably she's a half Jew uh, or some extent a Jew. But uh, the Samaritans were kind of the ten tribes that... Uh, basically were assimilated uh, into the Assyrian culture. The, the Assyrians basically put different people groups uh, into their culture and they intermarried and no longer were pure Jews. Now, Judah, uh, the southern kingdom, uh, is really what we're referring to when we talk about Jews. And so here are the Samaritans, and there's been a lot of ill will during that time, even to the point that the Samaritans would sometimes fight against the Jewish nation. Uh, they would fight against them, and then the Jews had prohibited them and even at one point torn down their tabernacle because they didn't have one in Jerusalem. The Jews weren't receiving them, so they put their own tabernacle up and the Jews tore it down. So there's a lot of ill feeling between them. There's a lot of prejudice going on uh, between these two. And so Jesus uh, comes on this scene, and here's a woman uh, who has come at the sixth hour in the middle of the day, at the heat of the day, and she has come to the well of Jacob, which was for the Samaritan uh, kind of a symbol or a place that they regarded to be holy, a place where you could connect with God, an, an area uh, much like the Jews would go to Jerusalem. Uh, the Samaritans would sometimes come to this area and feel like this was their holy place, so to speak. And this woman has come, and she's come to draw water from this well that Jacob had had. And says, 
Verse 7, when a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? Now here's Jesus. He's obviously a Jew. He's obviously um, a clean, so to speak, a pure Jew, one who uh, is not a run-of-the-mill, one who is uh, not, quote, a hardened sinner. There are probably some things that she could notice about him coming up, but this woman says to him, you are a Jew... And I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? And we see the parenthetical statement that the author gives us right there. For the Jews do not associate with the Samaritans. Not only did they not associate, for Jesus to drink after her, according to Jewish law, would have made him unclean. He would have been unclean. He wouldn't have been able to go to the temple. And so it's it's a big deal. And she's wondering, probably even sarcastically, why are you even talking to me? Why are you asking me this? And Jesus said, if you knew the gift of God, and we actually see the Trinity in this verse, and who it is that is asking you for a drink, you would have asked Him, the Son, and He would have given you the living water, the Holy Spirit. So if you knew God, you would know the Son, and you would have received the Holy Spirit. Now, she still does not know what's going on here, but she uses an interesting word here. Curious, it means... Uh, Sir or Lord. It can be interpreted in that manner. Lord, the woman said, and she gives him respect, utmost respect here, said, you have nothing to draw with the well, and the well is deep, but where can you get this living water that you're talking about? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us this well and drank for it from himself, as did his sons and his flocks and his herds? And interesting, the Samaritans only accepted the first five books of the Bible, which we call the Pentateuch of the Torah. And they did not receive the teachings of the rest of the Old Testament of the prophets. So they had a very limited understanding of the Messiah who would come, the one who would come someday. But yet there was still a hope, although they didn't know much about him. And certainly this woman was unlearned and uneducated. And Jesus says this, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty. And I believe there are a couple of messages going on. Certainly he's talking about the physical water, but the water of the religion. The water of the religion that you think when you come here, you're somehow connecting with God. The area that you come to to pray and worship and the system that you've set up and how that you think that you know God, and yet you've limited the Scriptures that you will even receive. It's going to leave you lacking Does she get all this? Probably not. But there's a message here that's for the ages for us, and she will get it. But whoever drinks of the water I give him will never thirst. Never thirst. Again, what is he talking about? He's talking about the Holy Spirit. He's not talking about a physical thirst. He's talking about a physical, or excuse me, spiritual manifestation of the Spirit. In other words, the Spirit will come in and there will be a transformation and it will give you life. It will give you hope. It will give you eternity with Christ. You will no longer have to wonder or hope or, or, or doubt the existence of God in your life. If He's there, if He is moving, if He is securing a place for you. You can know that. It doesn't mean that everything will be yippy-skippy. That's not what He is communicating here. Continues on. Indeed, the water I give him will be in him a spring of water welling up into eternal life. It's not a cistern. It's not just simply a well that we have here, but it is a continual flow of water. 
And then we see, she says, Lord, sir, give me this water. I, I, want, I don't want to get thirsty anymore. I, I don't want to keep coming here to draw water. I don't want to keep coming and hoping and, and, and having to, to hide my fears. And I, What do I have to do? And he told her, go and call your husband and then come back. She's coming to him. She's recognizing that he's some type of prophet. It seems that he knows truth. It seems that he has something. And she says, um, I, I, I want it. And what does he tell her? He says, uh, go to your husband. Of course, he's uh, omnipotent. And he knows what, that she does not have a husband right now. And he deals with her addiction, her cycle of sin, the thing that holds on to her right now, her manner of trying to achieve life and trying to achieve purpose. And she says this, I, I don't have a husband. And Jesus said to her, you are right when you say that you have no husband. The fact is, you've had five husbands, and the man that you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. You're right. You don't have a husband. You've had five and this is your cycle that you find yourself in. This is where you find yourself going to, trying to find life, trying to find purpose, trying to find meaning. You go to a man and that doesn't work. And well, maybe this one will work. Maybe this one will work. And you're once again trying. And that well always leaves you incredibly thirsty. And you're stuck in this cycle of sin. And I want you to identify that. Now, I want to release you from that. And we'll see later on, in fact, that she does receive and recognize him as Messiah and goes and tells her village. But Jesus, it's funny how he did this. He, he, even with a woman caught in adultery, go and sin no more. Recognize. Don't pretend it's not there. Don't close your eyes. Don't get this maladaptive mindset that it's not there, or that you can overcome it, or things will get better, and I'll just keep going this way. I want to ask Rob to come and share with us the rest of this message. Would you close your eyes with me for just a moment? Let's imagine something. I want you to try and picture this with me. If you would, there, while your eyes are closed, you're not really seeing anything. Try to push everything out of your mind. You're just kind of blank. And as you're beginning to come to consciousness, you begin hearing sirens and then voices over you. And you hear the voice of one saying, I think we've got him back. And, and as you're slowly coming back into consciousness, your, your vision uh, begins to, to uh, come back to you. And, and you realize you're looking up at the sky and you see stars and there are people moving over you. You look to your left and realize you're on the ground in the street. You look down and you realize your shirt has been cut open. And something is wrong. Something is desperately wrong. You can open your eyes. As they put me into the ambulance and I began to find out exactly what the problem was, uh, what had happened was uh, someone had called the police and said, there's a drunk passed out at the wheel. And uh, when the police got there, what they found was not a drunk, but a 19-year-old man who had stopped breathing from a heroin overdose. And so the question that we have to ask ourselves is, how is it that a kid who is given all of life's 
chances, who was raised in a very affluent neighborhood, who was raised by parents who loved and cared for him, who were educated, who had some prominence in the community. How was it that this kid wound up dying in the street in Atlanta of a heroin overdose? I was born in 1980 and raised in the city of Plano. And during that time, Plano was very much like Flower Mound is today, kind of this flourishing, up-and-coming city. In fact, they like to call it the All-American City. And so uh, it was there that I was given the opportunity to read and learn to read and write early. And, and in that respect, I had all of the uh, opportunities that anyone could possibly be afforded. Uh, when I was seven, my parents divorced, which is pretty normal in our culture, and we moved around, my mother and I, for a while. And we wound up, when she remarried, we wound up landing in Chicago. And outside of Chicago, in the suburbs there, um, I was 11 years old, and I began searching, trying to find an identity for myself. Who was I? And uh, one of uh, some of the people I was associating with, their older brother, was uh, actually a member of a gang there in Chicago called the Latin Kings. And so I kind of, uh, I associated with older people. I was more mature than a lot of kids my age, and so I always typically ran with older people. And it was through him that I learned to sell drugs and began experimenting with drugs at the age of 11. Now, as you might well guess, the proverbial line in the sand with parents and is, is drugs. When your kid is using drugs, obviously you're not going to let him. So with this came this battle at home, the battle of the wills, this clash. Um, and that would tease itself out for the next 10 years or so. Um, so just to give you kind of an idea, by the end of eighth grade, um, this smart kid from a good family uh, had been arrested for possession of marijuana. Now I had uh, depression and I showed up in a, uh, I was placed in a psychiatric unit at one point. Um, and so I was struggling with depression, struggling with drugs and trying to find myself. And that was the close. And during that period, once I was hospitalized, they, they identified my problem as polysubstance abuse, which is you'll do anything, anytime, anywhere, as long as it changes how you feel. So that was the predicament in which I found myself. We, uh, my stepfather transferred back to Texas, and we moved to Fort Worth. We lived in Eagle Mountain Lake in that area. That's where I went to high school. And in my high school years, at my freshman year, I began um, to uh, develop an alcoholism that was rather progressive. Um, I drank more than, it wasn't just drinking on the weekends. I drank before and after and during school. And just so you understand, um, when you're in a circumstance where by law here in this country, you have to send your kid to school um, and your kid can go to school and get anything that he wants. Uh, it becomes difficult to fight that battle. Um, and that was the battle that we had in our home. No matter what my parents did, they couldn't stop me from self-destructing. And so that uh, developed um, through my high school years. And at the age of 16, I was kindly asked to leave my mother's home and go live with my father. And I went back and lived in Plano. And the kids that I had grown up with, the ones that I had gone to elementary school with and kindergarten with, I hooked up with these old friends. And now, in 1996, they were all strung out on heroin. This was the period in time when Plano was making the national news and was on Dateline NBC because kids were dying. Those were my friends. 
those were people that I began to associate with. And because I was different and I was unique and I was smarter than everyone else, I decided not to become a heroin addict. I got strung out on cocaine. And so I was able to uh, continue this line of thinking, this belief that somehow I was different. I was unique. I didn't have the problem that they had. I didn't get sick. I just couldn't stop. And um, this progressed so badly that, frankly, it scared me. Um, and I was, I was a difficult kid to scare um, my arms were bruised every day, and, and I was pretty upset with kind of the way that, that I was living. So I thought certainly the best thing to do would be to move, a locational change, because if I can just get out of Plano, then I'll be okay. So I moved back to Fort Worth, convinced my mom to let me back in, give me another chance. And I concluded high school, continuing this alcoholic kind of battle of trying to be good and not really being good at all. By the end of my senior year, Within two months of graduation, uh, in, because I was so smart, right, because I was so different and unique, I decided not to use cocaine intravenously anymore. I decided the thing to do would be to smoke crack. So within two months of graduation, I sold everything that I owned and everything that I could steal, and I lost 33 pounds and eventually wound up homeless. Then I started asking for help and started going to treatment centers. And I bounced around from various treatment center to various treatment center. Uh, fortunately for me, we had pretty good insurance and my parents didn't want me to die. And so early on, we spent truckloads of money trying to get me the, because they could. They, they would sacrifice anything in order to save my life. Um, but eventually we exhausted those resources and we exhausted the insurance. Uh, but I did go to some of the more prominent programs in the Southwest in several different states. Um, I got kicked out of many of them for behavior issues and not being compliant with various rules. But the one that's more significant is uh, when I went to Metro Atlanta Recovery Residences in Atlanta. I was in the program and got removed from the program, and I decided Atlanta was a good place to land and not come back here. So uh, I was in a halfway house, and that's actually when I started drinking again and then wound up dying in the street in Atlanta. There in the Albertsons parking lot, uh, I, I used and evidently put the car in gear and pulled up to a light and um, the next thing I knew I was on the ground and they were bringing me back to life but that didn't stop me once I got out of jail for that I wound up coming back and bouncing around in various treatment centers here the moral of the story is that I always identified as uh, identified myself as being different that somehow I didn't have it as bad as you had it. I wasn't as bad as them. And I was unique, terminally unique, in fact. So back here in Texas, I went to several treatment programs here and um, got in some trouble there. I, I didn't have a problem, but when I went to Valley Hope here in Grapevine, uh, I wound up drinking a bottle of Listerine and that again, sent me to the hospital. But remember, I'm different and I don't have a problem. Finally, my mother and I wind up living in a motel. 
because I can't go home. My stepfather won't let me in the house anymore. And there we lived for a week or two trying to figure out what to do. She had to sleep with her keys in her pillowcase because, frankly, if I could get a hold of them, I would be gone. At that point, we were, I was faced with the decision. I was given the choice to go to the Union Gospel Mission, and I'd been homeless before, or to go to some rinky-dink Christian program out in the woods. So, since I had had that experience of being on the street before, I didn't uh, think that was a great idea. So I took this little treatment program again. And it was there at the House of Isaiah, a little podunk program, not nearly as nice as the expensive insurance giants. Didn't have all the facilities and, and, and everything as, as robust and wonderful and beautiful as it probably should have been. But it was there in that program that I became a Christian. It was there in that program that I began to learn how to live and to rebuild my life. And from there, later, I would uh, feel the call to do ministry, to serve others. I left. Uh, I worked there as a director of admissions for several years after that, working with families, helping other people. And I learned the greatest lesson that I've ever learned in my life. And that is that my happiness, true joy for me, comes through serving other people, that I found who I was when I surrendered everything that I wanted for others. Now, I uh, have had the opportunity to go to college, and I'm graduating this spring from a master's program and just recently was accepted into a Ph.D. program, and I'm, I'm getting the opportunity to fulfill what it is that I believe God wants me to do in my life. What I want you to understand is this, that now... Whereas my life was completely hopeless, and frankly, even my family, other than my mother, had written me off. My life wasn't over. The cycle could be broken. Today, I have restored family relationships. I have children who I can see both my good and my bad reflected in. I have a wonderful wife who has shown me love like I have never known and I'm actually at peace and have some semblance of joy in who I am. And so what I have today is lasting freedom, freedom that comes from breaking free of the cycle. Now, I realize that many of you are able, as I used to be, to sit in the pew and to distance myself from this person. See, my story is a little over the top, and I understand that. And so it's very easy to... to distance ourselves from that kind of wild life. But I'd suggest to you that although you may not struggle with heroin or alcoholism, that maybe, in fact, we all, to some degree, participate in cycles, cycles of behavior and thinking patterns that prevent us from being the father, the mother, the sister, the brother, the friend, the church member that we are called to be, that hinder us from being everything that we can be. These cycles of thinking. So I want to point out to you, Ron and I want to show you three factors of the cycle. The factors of the cycle. These are things that are, that are part of this cycle of addiction, if you want to call it that, or maladaptive behavior, probably would be a better way to look at it. But 
The first is what I call the me, myself, and I syndrome. This is the notion that somehow you're unique. And this is what we fall prey to in America. Because we have been influenced so deeply by this idea of individualism that somehow when we come to church, we think that all we need is ourselves. That we can pull ourselves up by ourselves and by maybe even reaching out to our God, but privately, because I don't want you to know what I'm going through. We're unique. So unique that no one else understands what I'm going through. I suggest that there are many people here today who may feel that way, who may feel as though no one understands what I'm going through. I'm not like them. God wouldn't do that for me. The me, myself, and I syndrome enables us to convince ourselves that our struggle is unique. Secondly, denial. The idea that somehow our behavior isn't a problem. And see, especially if yours isn't an outward addiction, but yours is this behavior pattern that keeps you, that prevents you. But guess what? It works for you. You've learned how to, you've learned how to function with it. Almost like a functioning alcoholic. They can keep working and keep paying the bills, but they're miserable and stay stuck in the cycle. And finally, hiding. We like to hide our behaviors from others, from our family, from our friends, from our spouse. Innately, we know that something that we're doing is not right. But if we just don't address it, if we just don't let our, in my case, if I just don't let my wife know what I've done, then I, I won't get confronted about it, frankly. Right? These three things are factors that contribute to the cycle. What we want to give you this morning are several uh, very concrete and very easy steps to break free of the cycle, to get lasting freedom. And the first one is simply this. Get honest. You can't break free from the cycle if you don't even realize that you have one. You have to be willing to become honest with yourself, to be self-reflective, to say, you know what? The way that I'm handling this, the way that I'm handling stress or handling my kids or handling my relationship with my wife, there's something wrong here. The pattern that I'm falling into, there's, there's something broken here. And so you have to be willing to get honest. And secondly, you have to be willing to get serious. You can't, uh, it's one thing to identify the problem, it's an entirely different thing to become willing to do something about it. And thirdly, get real. We have to get real. And see, getting real is not just about getting real with your faith. That is, taking these problems to God. Because let me assure you, God will help you. But I submit to you that one of the key or central ways that God helps us and helps me is through a community of people. Through people who can talk to me through spiritual advisors and leaders who can actually hold me accountable because I won't hold me accountable. And then it becomes easy to say, well, if God really wanted me to change, he would change me. But no one else knows, and so no one else can hold me accountable. So we have to get real. And finally, we have to get lasting recovery. That is, lasting freedom, a lifestyle of living in this manner. It's not just okay to break the cycle only to begin it again. My life is characteristic of this. Over and over and over. What we're after 
is lasting life change, a lifestyle of self-reflection, of prayer, of involvement in the community, of taking action to both do things positively and to refrain from things and situations that would cause us to fall back into these patterns. And so, that is our hope this morning, is that these concrete steps would help you to see, as they have for us, these patterns of maladaptive behavior that we develop. Because underneath heroin and cocaine and sex addiction and pornography and food and all these other addictions, underneath, you may not have that, but underneath all of that is a foundation of thinking that enables that behavior in the long run. And it all starts with these factors and it can only be stopped by addressing them. And I ask Pastor Ron to come back up and pray for us. Father, thank You for this time. Thank You for all the grace that has been offered to us. Thank You for the power that has been afforded to us. And I pray that we would call upon the name of the Lord today that we might be saved. Saved from sin, saved from the cycle, saved from the death of life, saved, Lord, from ourselves in some instances. Lord, I thank You that You are sufficient. You are powerful. You can do what is too hard for us. But we must be willing to confess, admit, and receive. So this morning, Lord, if there's one that's not received You as Savior, I pray that You would draw them by the power of Your Spirit. In the name of Jesus, we pray these things. Amen.